If you remember, we are in, like Marty said, the year of faith. In the first third of the year, we're going to be taking a look at knowing the faith of our fathers, knowing our faith. And then the second third of the year, we're going to be taking a look at building our faith. We're, we're going to get into the character of Daniel, and I, I want to encourage you. These really are built on one another, but uh, that's the second third of the year. And then the last third of the year, we're going to be taking a look at expressing our faith. Today, we're going to ta- start a short journey on knowing the faith of our fathers. I would say that a vast majority of us are first-generation believers. At least that is true for myself. And when I say that, what I mean is that we grew up in families where faith wasn't personal. We may have gone to church, we may have gone to Sunday school, we may have gone to, I don't know, vacation Bible school, but it wasn't a personal thing. But now it is. You've come to faith, maybe here, at Life Point. And that's what I believe makes Life Point so exciting. I love new believers, okay? But with that said, it is important for you and I to know the faith of our fathers. The Church of Jesus Christ is the oldest and largest legacy in the world. The church is not some fly-by-night organization. I think I've told you this before. In fact, I'm doing more research on this just for the book of Daniel. But there are in this world approximately 600 million Buddhists in the world. There are about 800 million Hindus in the world. There is 1.2 billion Muslims in the world. And there are 2.3 billion Christians. In fact, as I've been doing research on this, our world in a whole is not becoming more secular. Do you realize that? It is becoming more religious. In fact, the two fastest growing religions is Islam through conception and Christianity through conversion. And Christianity by far is the largest. There are 2.3 billion people who say Jesus Christ is the son of God. That makes the church the largest organization in the world. It is bigger than any nation. It is bigger than India and China put together. It is more global than anything else. In fact, the church has been global before someone even thought of the word global, okay? We as a church, the universal church, speak more languages than the United Nation does. And what I absolutely love about this is that we have all chosen to be together because of what we believe. Folks, I can go to Nigeria and we, we've got community. I can go to Cameroon and we've got community. I can go to South Africa and we've got community. I can go to the Philippines and I've been to all those places. And we have chosen to come together because of what we believe. Now Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse three, says this. Not Jude, hey Jude. And we're not talking about that Jude, okay? This is... The, the, the Bible, okay? Jude, verse three says this. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Will you circle that phrase? Once for all. What that means is this. That truth is truth is truth is truth. That if it's true, it's always true. It never changes. It is eternal. 
If it was true yesterday, it is true today. And if it's true today, it will be true tomorrow. But here is the deal with truth. It has to be discovered. And when you discover new truth, it doesn't mean that it was new, that all of a sudden it just happened. No, it's been there all along. We have just now discovered it. Now, what has happened through time is that when new truth has been discovered, it has been put with the old truth that never changes, but then it is passed to the next generation. And if you think about that, Christianity is only one step away from extinction if you and I do not pass our faith on to our kids and to our grandkids. So parents, I want you to take good notes on this because we're going to pass our faith to our kids. And grandparents, you have an opportunity to pass your faith to your grandkids. And because if we don't understand this, we are one step away from extinction. Now, in order for that to happen, guess what? We gotta know our faith, don't we? And not only do we have to know it, we have to be rooted in it. And when I say rooted in it, we have to be practicing it. And that is what we are going to be doing over these next several weeks. Now, for the last 2,000 plus years, the church has used three primary tools to pass their faith on to the next generation. They are called confessions, creeds, and catechisms. The first one is confessions. And when I say confessions, I am not at all talking about admitting your sins, your flops, failures, and fumbles to God and to other people. No, a confession is this. It is a detailed description of what Christians believe written in topical essay format with supporting Bible verses. That is what a confession is. The second tool that the church has used through the ages to pass on their faith to the next generation is called creeds. And creeds are nothing more than a short summary of our beliefs that can be memorized. And oftentimes, they're recited at different events, so to speak, in the church, like communion today, or at baptisms. The third tool is catechism. And catechism is nothing more than a question-answer format for learning beliefs. A teacher asks the question and a student re responds with the answer. And like I said, these things, like catechism, have been used for thousands of years. In fact, there is a famous catechism written 1563 called the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. It, it brought the Lutherans and the... Um, uh, the Presbyterians together. It was a 365-day class. And you had to take it before you could join the church. Aren't you glad that we only have four classes, right? <laughs> and they're each independent, and they're all only two hours each, okay? I want to encourage you, again, if you haven't uh, joined a spiritual family, you need to be in one. God doesn't want you to be an orphan in the street. There's no way in the world you can understand and discover your purpose Apart, uh, apart from the church that he wants you to be uh, involved with, okay? Now, when it comes to creeds, guess what? Everyone's got one. Doesn't matter who they are, everyone's got a creed. Atheists have a creed. You know what their creed is? I don't believe in God. That's a creed. 
secular people have creeds, and a lot of their creeds are self-centered. They're not God-centered, they're self-centered. I've gotta look out for me. I gotta look out for number one. He who, he who dies with the most toys wins. Everybody's got a creed. Today, as we start this new series called Knowing the Faith of Our Fathers, we're gonna take a look at what all Christians have as a creed. Why? Because I want you to know what you believe. I want you to be intelligent believers. I want you to be mature. I want you to know more about your faith than other people do. I want you to know why you believe what you believe for two big reasons. One, when we did the first of the series on doors, open doors, what, let's make a deal with doors. I concluded my part of that series by saying, you won't be able to discover your future unless you have discernment. And discernment comes from knowledge. We need knowledge. And this series is gonna set that up. But secondly, we need to know what we, what we need to know and where it came from so that we can pass it on to others in our relational world. And so today, we're gonna take a look at the oldest creed known to Christianity, the Apostles' Creed. It was written in the second century, about 50 years after the New Testament was written. And in this creed, the original creed, there is a word, it's not on the one that you have on your outlines, okay? I've given you a modern translation, but on the old one, I need to explain this, is this word, Catholic. And it's with a little c. There is a big difference between a little c and a big c. A big c means Roman Catholic Church. A little c means universal. It means we believe in the universal church of Christ. And so in one sense, I could describe myself as a little c, okay? I could do that. Not a big C. I am not a Roman Catholic, but I, I can describe, you know what? I am a little C. I believe in the universal church of Jesus Christ, that there are other believers in all the churches throughout the world. You could describe yourself as a little C, okay? That's who you really are. You're a part of the universal church of Christ throughout the world. Now, a lot of times, people will ask me this question. Pastor George, what are you? Well, I'm Pastor George. I mean, I am who I am, right? Good looking hunk of hunk of burning love, right? Likes to wear Hawaiian shirts. No, Pastor George, I'm not talking about that. What are you in the sense of your faith? And when they ask that question, I tell them four things in this order. First of all, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I am an evangelical. My faith is rooted in the New Testament. Third, I am a non-denominational person, meaning I, I don't have a faith that comes from, the, from tradition. I don't have that kind of heritage. And, but then number four, I am a religious libertarian. In other words, I believe God gave man a moral choice to either reject him or accept him. And because I believe that, I too must give people freedom to either reject Christ or accept Christ. That's who I am in my faith. If someone came to you, one of your kids, and asked you, what are you in regards to your faith? How would you answer that? 
Let's take a look at this creed. It is called the Apostle Creed. And I'm gonna read the new translation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and, and, the, life ever, and the life everlasting. Amen. Notice in this creed that it has three parts. God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And the section that gets most of the attention in this creed is on Jesus. In fact, it lists nine different things that Jesus did. It's conceived, he was born, he suffered, he was crucified, he was died and buried, he, he descended and rose again, he ascended, he is seated, and he is coming again. Why does it spend so much time on Jesus? To, counter, to counteract error. And the big error of the first two centuries of Christianity revolved around Jesus' humanity. It didn't revolve around his deity. They believed that he was God. But was he really human? And this was pushed by the Gnostics who believed that anything physical was evil or sinful. And so, yes, Jesus was God, but was he really human? It may appear that he was human, but maybe he wasn't human. Because they thought, again, that anything physical was evil or sinful. And so this creed addresses this error. And it talks about Jesus, that Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man. Now, why is this important? Why does it matter? Is it really that important? Absolutely. If you talk to the average person on the street and ask them what they think of God, they will, you will get all kinds of answers. You will get some who will say, you know what, I think God is some kind of tyrant in the sky who's about ready to strike you down, little sinner, you little jerk. A lot of people think that way. Some people think of this, this God as being a grandpa who's impotent, has no strength, he can't do anything. Or they think of God as one who, yeah, he's the creator, but he could care less about creation. He's aloof and distant. And yet Jesus Christ comes along as 100% God and 100% man, and he explodes this misconception about God by saying this in two words, our Father. Now you think about that. God is eternal. He never changes. That means that he has been Father all along. And Father implies a child, a son. And he just didn't one day have a son it would be like, that's, that's our experience, right? <laughs> One day I'm not a dad, the next day I'm a dad, okay. No, God has always been father. So that means he's always had a son and that son therefore must be eternal. He must be God. And when Jesus said, 
I am the son of God. Everyone knew what he was talking about. I'm it. And so Jesus says, this is how you need to address God, our Father. And that is why this creed starts off, God the Father. Which means, or I should say, which doesn't mean, I believe in God the Mother. And of course, God has no sexual orientation. He created both male and female in his image. One gender isn't any better than the other gender. And truly, both genders are needed to get some kind of expression of what God is like. But he says, you are to call God Father. And anybody has the right to be called anything they want to be called. That's why a lot of times when I talk with little kids, hey, what's your name? Bobby. I say, Bobby, do you like your name? And they look at me. Yeah? So I was just asking, it was assigned to you. You know, if you don't like it, you can change it, I guess, when you get older or whatever. No, folks, you and I get to choose what we want to be called by. And God says, I want to be called Father. So what kind of Father is our God? Will you write these down? Five things. First of all, he is competent. That means he is all-powerful, that he is omniscient, that he knows everything okay, and can do everything. That is why it says, well, I believe in God the Father, almighty. And because he's almighty, guess what? He is a creator. That's the second thing. Will you write that down? He is creative. He loves variety. He loves creating when you look at the world and you see all the design that's in the world, you walk away and think, man, there's got to be a designer behind this great, beautiful design. And there is. Third, he is a consistent father. God never is moody. He never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. Folks, he never wakes up grouchy. He lets Cheryl sleep in every day. You got that. That's good. Forgive me, Cheryl, wherever you're at out there. No, he never changes, folks. And that's why you and I can trust in him. God is caring. He loves you more than you know. Not only does he love you, he likes you. He likes you a lot, okay? He loves you, he likes you, and he cares for you. Everything that you are going through right now in your life, guess what? He cares for you. And at LifePoint, we care. That's why we pray with people. That's why we work with whatever your situations are. And finally, He's close. He's not distant. Folks, he's nearby. He's there when you need him. He's available. He's accessible 24-7. You may feel like he's not there. You may feel alone. But feelings lie, don't they? When you and I worry, do you know what that is? It's in essence saying, God, I don't really believe you. I don't believe that you really care. I don't really believe that you're close, that you're concerned, that you're competent, that you can do this situation. And so as a result, God feels distant. But Jesus Christ came along, 100% God and 100% man. And he came so that you and I could see it, so that we could experience it, so that we could personalize it. God is our Father. Now, like I said, the greater part of this creed is around Jesus, and it lists nine things that he did. The question isn't, what did Jesus do? 
The question is, why did he do it? And what does it matter? Well, folks, it does matter. It's really, really important that you and I know why he did what he did. Because the more you know what Jesus did for you, the closer you're going to feel to him. And the more you're going to love him. And when you feel close to God and you love God because you're rooted in him, that will permeate your family. It will impact your kids. It will impact your grandkids across the board. So this is extremely important. The Apostle Creed from the Bible tells us, number one, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why? To meet our needs. Take a look at Hebrews 7, 26. Jesus is the kind of high priest that meets our needs. He is holy. He has no fault or sin in him. Now, how does that work? How does Jesus, having no sin, meet our needs? Well, follow me with this. To meet all your needs perfectly, Jesus had to be perfect. Because if he was imperfect, he would have not been able to meet all of our needs perfectly. So for God to meet your needs, he just couldn't send a normal, average human being. He had to come himself because only God is perfect. And for God to come into this world, he had to come in a supernatural way. And so he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know how that works. But if you believe that God is almighty, he could do it, and folks, he did it. Why? To meet all of your needs perfectly. Second thing the Bible says is that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. Why? To be your savior. Take a look at Luke chapter two, verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. He is Christ the Lord. You see, when Jesus came, he didn't come for his benefit. He came for your benefit. He came for your sins. He came to be your Savior. He came to save you from death, from hell, from a meaningless life, from guilt, from bitterness, from worry. These first two points out of the Apostles' Creed, help us to see the difference between Jesus being 100% God and him being 100% man. He chose to be born of a virgin Mary. And he came as a baby. Why? Because nobody's scared of a baby. No one's afraid of a baby. And he came as a human being. And when he grew up, guess what? He experienced what you and I experienced. He got tired, he laughed, he cried, he got colds, he got the flu, he got frustrated, he had different emotions in him. Why? Because he was 100% human. And by the way, he also was tempted, but without sin. Why? Because he wasn't just 100% human, he was also 100% God. Now some people think that God came to earth so that he would know what us humans feel. That's not true. We were created by God. The feelings we have come from God. He came so that we would know that he knew. 
So now, we're gonna take, I'm gonna ask the ushers to come down. And I'm gonna go to the third point. Ushers, come on down. And I want us to start serving communion because this is what would happen 2,000 years ago. So ushers, come down and begin passing out the elements. Hold on to those elements, okay, until we take them together. And when that happens, I'll come down. I know this is challenging. I'm asking you to do it multitask, right? Receive the elements while I'm teaching and write down a few things. But I know you can do it. This church is above average in intelligence, okay? So here's the third thing the Bible says, is that he suffered. Why? In order to heal our hurts. How many of us here, raise your hands, saw the movie The Passion? Remember that Passion? It was a number of years ago. That movie was about the last 12 hours of Jesus' life and his suffering. Why in the world did he go through that? Well, he did it for a purpose. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 53, 4 and 5. But he took our suffering on him and felt our pain for us. He was wounded for the wrong we did. He was crushed for the evil we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him, and we are healed because of his wounds. Will you circle that phrase? We are healed. Jesus took your pain. He took your punishment. He paid for your sin so that you wouldn't have to. And as a result, your hurts are healed. He was truly hung up for your hang-ups. And Jesus hung on a cross and was crucified so that you would stop crucifying yourself over the things that you've done wrong and the guilt that comes from it, the guilt, the resentment, the bitterness that is there. He suffered to heal our hurts. The Bible says, the fourth thing, that he was crucified. Why? To make us acceptable to God. Now this is an amazing truth. Take a look at Colossians 1, verse 22. Now God has made you his friends. Again, he did this through Christ's death in the body so that he might bring you into God's presence as people who are holy with no wrong and with nothing of which God can judge you guilty. Now let me explain this. When something goes wrong, it needs to be corrected I mean, should Hitler get away with killing six million Jews? No way. Folks, when we see those kinds of things, when we, when we experience those, even in our world, maybe in other places throughout the world, maybe even in our own nation, there is something inside of us that gnaws us that says this has to be corrected. And there is a word for that. It is called justice. It is innate. He's built it within us. We believe in justice. And God is not just a God of love. He is also a God of justice. And when Jesus died on the cross, he showed us both God's love and God's justice at the same time. When I blow it, when Pastor George sins, and I know that may be a shock to some of you, 
Not really, George. We know that you're a sinner. Okay, yes. Okay. When I blow it on this lower story, what happens on earth? In the upper story, where God resides, he looks down and he sees that Pastor George has blown it. That he has flops, failures, and fumbles. That he has said things that he shouldn't have said. That he has thought things that he shouldn't have thought. That he has screwed up and messed up a lot of different things. And God in his upper story looks and says, you know what, I can't allow George to come into heaven because heaven is a perfect place. If I allow George, Pastor George, to come into heaven, it's gonna become imperfect because he is filled full of anger and envy and jealousy and lust and resentment and pride and ego. And me being God and knowing George, I know he can't solve this problem on his own because imperfection cannot become perfection. And so God says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be the substitute. I will pay the debt. I will serve the time. I will take the bullet for Pastor George. And in so doing, I will show my love and I will show my justice. Now the Bible has a word for this. It is called justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. And if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God looks at you and says, just as if you've never sinned. Meaning, when you get to heaven and you say, God, about that sin, man, I really screwed up on that one. God's gonna look at you and say, huh, what? No, I don't don't remember that. Because he's gonna look at you just as if you'd never sinned. And this is what communion is about. It is about a time where we reflect on God's sacrifice for our sins. But it's also a time where we celebrate that we are forgiven. That we know that one day when he comes back and we stand face to face in front of our Savior, that he looks at us as perfect. That is worth celebrating, okay? Wow. And so as a spiritual family, what has been practiced for 2,000 plus years, let's take this as a spiritual family, okay? Let me read this, then we'll take the bread, and I'll read a little bit more, take the juice, and then close in a word of prayer and finish the message. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the juice. Lord, I thank you that you were broken. For us, 
and that you just didn't do it from heaven above, but that you came to earth and you suffered for my sin and you shed your blood. You went the distance so that I and we could stand before you someday justified. One of your kids, one of your sons, one of your daughters, perfect in your sight. And we thank you, God, for that. Today we rejoice and we celebrate because of what you've done for us. God, thank you for these elements. Thank you that at times like this, it pulls us together as one family, celebrating and rejoicing in who you are and what you've done for us. And so we give you this time in your son's precious name, amen. There's a fifth thing that the Bible says about Jesus that the creed has, and it is this, that he, he died and he was buried. Why? To free us from the fear of death. God in his upper story said, you know what? I'm gonna take the sting out of death. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna come to earth and I am going to die and yet I'm going to rise again so that people will no longer fear that death is the end, that there is life afterwards. It is kind of like a bee that is buzzing around my grandchildren. When they hear that bee, they cry out, Grandpa, Grandpa, there's a bee, we're going to get stung. And so what does Grandpa do, being the hero that he is? He gets a swat, a swatter, a fly swatter, and he swats it. And he holds the bee down, and he gets a tweezer, and he pulls out the stinger. And then he lets the bee fly, because I'm green. Grandpa, why did you let the bee fly away? I'll deal with that bee later. But Grandpa, I can hear it still buzzing around. Yeah, he is. But I've taken the stinger out and it won't hurt you anymore. This is what God did through Christ. Take a look at Hebrews chapter two, verse 15. And Jesus became like men, and he died so that he could free us. We were like slaves all of our lives because of our fear of death. Folks, I'm not afraid to die. I am indestructible until it is God's time. And when it happens, guess what? I'm gonna welcome it, really. Because it's God's way of busting open the door to usher me in to eternity future. Get it? Good Give it away, folks. I am sharing this with you so that you can know your faith, so that you can pass it on to your kids and your grandkids. You take that sheet of paper. As you leave, you get one of those Apostle Creed tents and you start going over it. You do it this whole series and you start teaching your kids these things and we will reach the next generation. Jesus died and buried to free us from death. The sixth thing is that the Bible says is that he descended and rose again. Why? To forgive our sins. 
Now, this is in the old creed. The new one you have doesn't have this descend into hell type thing. In fact, the old one does say, Jesus descended into hell. What in the world does that mean? What did Jesus do? Uh, the time he was buried to the time he resurrected, those, those three days, okay? Well, we only have one verse that maybe gives us a little hint. We're not really for sure. It's in 1 Peter 3, uh, 19 that says, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That's all it says. No other explanation, okay? Now, some people think that he went to hell and preached the good news. In essence, saying this, we win, woohoo! you lose, okay, Satan lost. But the truth is, folks, we really don't know. But what I do know is that he didn't go to hell to pay for your sins. He did that on the cross. And it was enough. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, it's finished. So in other words, Jesus didn't go to hell to suffer in hell for your sins. That's just not true. He did it on the cross and it was enough. What we do know is that he rose again on the third day. And this is extremely important because Jesus put everything on that point. Jesus said all kinds of things. And he said, to prove to you that I am who I said I am and that I'm gonna do what I said I was gonna do, I'm gonna resurrect from the grave. He said, guess what, I'm God. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And to prove to you that I'm it, I'm gonna allow people to kill me, but on the third day, I'm gonna resurrect from the grave. And that's exactly what he did. If he hadn't done that, you and I are fools. As C.S. Lewis says, we, he is either Lord or he is a liar or he is a lunatic. You see, I happen to believe he's Lord. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, 17. In Christ, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still under condemnation for your sins. He arose to forgive us our sins. The seventh thing that the Bible says that's in the Apostles' Creed that we need to pass on, that we need to know and pass on is this, that he ascended to heaven. Why? To give spiritual gifts. Take a look at Ephesians 4, 8, and 9. When he ascended on high, he led a parade of captives and he gave gifts to people. When it says he went up, what does it mean? It means that he first came down to the earth. Well, you circle the phrase, gave gifts. What Paul is doing here is he's pulling an image out of that day of Caesar. Caesar would go off to war and he would conquer and he would come back. And when he would come back, he would have a parade of people behind him who had the spoils of that war. And what they were doing is just throwing out gifts to everybody from that victory. The Bible says that when Jesus defeated Satan by resurrecting from the grave, that he too came back and he gave gifts. This is what our step three, our pathway to purpose step three is about. Really you understanding the gifts that God has given you so that you understand your purpose in life. The eighth thing the Bible says that's in the Apostles' Creed is that right now Jesus is seated by the Father. Why? To pray for us. 
Take a look at this, Romans 8, 34. Will Christ condemn us? No, for he is the one who died for us and came back to life for us and is sitting at the place of the highest honor next to God, pleading for us there in heaven. Will you circle the phrase, it's mentioned three times, for us. Isn't it encouraging that Jesus is in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit? Hey, they're praying for us. Hey, you can make it. They're praying for us. Now, I know you may be sitting there, you may be thinking, well, George, hold it here. Does God pray to God? I mean, isn't that kind of like he's talking to himself? Well, sure. I mean, don't you talk to yourself? Oh, I talk to myself all the time. And I talk to myself about my kids all the time. You know what? They look just like me. Good looking kids. Man, they are awesome. Look, my grandkids. Oh, man, I love my grandkids. They look just like me, okay? Just awesome. Uh, what? My kids are doing what? How stupid. That must come from their mother. <laughs> Forgive me, Cheryl. Okay, I'll, I'll be sleeping on the couch tonight. Folks, a sign that God loves you is that he talks about you to himself. You're awesome. You're great. Have you ever experienced something in your life that was so painful, you felt like your heart was being pulled out of your chest and you just cried out to God? You didn't even know what to do. God, this, I don't know what's going on. God, just help. How does that prayer work? Well, take a look at this verse in Romans 8, 26. The Holy Spirit helps us in our distress we don't know what to pray for, nor how we should pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groaning that can't be expressed in words. Anytime you are in such anguish and such pain that you don't even know what to say, and you just say, God, just help. Will you just help, God? Prayer, that prayer works because the Father is listening and the Holy Spirit is interpreting. The ninth thing the Bible says that's in the Apostles' Creed is this, that he's going to come again. Why? To judge the living and the dead and to reward. That's both good news and bad news. The bad news is if you haven't accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you're going to be judged. Take a look at uh, Matthew 12, 34. Or 36, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. God's gonna judge everything, even the words that we have spoken, chosen to speak. But that's the bad news. The good news is those who have accepted Christ get to pass out of death into life. Take a look at John 5. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they, will, but they have already passed from death into life. Folks, that is a good deal. That is good news for us. Here's how this works. For those who have accepted Christ, all that you do for Christ after that point, you will be rewarded for. And understand this, that your salvation is not a reward for something that you've done. No, it is a gift that God gave you. There's a huge difference. 
a gift that God gave you for receiving what he did through his son, Jesus Christ, in your life personally. But everything that you do after you've received Christ, God is going to reward you for. That is why it's important that you understand your shape so that you're working in the zone, that you're in the bullseye. You feel it and you'll just do more of it. And God says, man, you're just clicking up rewards in heaven. That's why that step is so important. And one of the rewards is this. We get new bodies. And some of you need a new body. Well, the Presbyterians down the street need a new body, okay? Just kidding. Here, take a look at this verse. Philippians 3.21. When he comes back, he will take these dying bodies of ours and change them into glorious new bodies like his own, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything and everywhere. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. So here are the nine things in the Apostles' Creed. Are you interested in reaching the next generation for Jesus Christ? How many of you have kids? You came to church. Oh, yeah, okay, great. Show, show your hands. Oh, a lot of us. How many of us know of somebody who they went to church and when their kids got old enough, high school, college, they stopped going and their kids went off into left field. And then they're scratching their heads. What in the world is going on with my kids? What happened? Let's be honest. You have to know your faith. And you have to be rooted in your faith. So that it's seen in your life. So that the next generation catches it. And then passes it on to, their grand, to, your, to your grandkids. And so here it is. He was, he was conceived by God's spirit to do what? Talk to me. Get that out. I'm the teacher. This is like catechism class. Question, answer, okay? We'll start from the beginning. All you have to do is say, here we go. He was conceived by God's spirit to meet our needs. He was born to be our savior. He suffered to heal our hurts. He was crucified to make us acceptable to God. He died and rose, uh, he died and was buried to free us from the fear of death. He descended and rose again to forgive our sins. He ascended to heaven to give us spiritual gifts. He is seated with God the Father right now to pray for us. He will come again to judge and reward. Get it? Good? Give it away, folks. Let's pray. Lord, I just really thank you. I just thank you for every person that's come before me. God, I thank you for, I thank you for those first 12 disciples. Many of them were martyred for their faith. I thank you for the first century church that began spreading it, living it and spreading it throughout the world. I thank you for their lives. I thank you for the, 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 the confessions 
of those in times past. I thank you for the catechism classes in times past. I thank you, God, for the creeds of times past, those things where truth has been revealed about who you are and have been passed on to us that we can experience what we experience today because of it. God, I thank you for them. And may you look at us, God, as those who are faithful, to not only know, but to be rooted in it, to be living it, God, to be spreading it to our kids and to our grandkids. God, we want to be found faithful. And so may you do a mighty work of grace in our life, God. In these next few weeks, work deeply in us, God, so that you can work through us. We give this to you in your son's precious name. Amen.